OPN Ask an Angel podcasts are conversations with global angel investors and venture capitalists. We explore how to invest, understanding investment strategies, and approaches to due diligence. Join us and learn what it takes to be a startup or what it takes to invest in the next great company. Uh, welcome. We can jump right into this as we're already live, so we're pretty easy going. Uh, sometimes we get people to join because I just do it last minute. I don't try to do this as a big push so that we get hundreds of people. We just do this to get that out there and then we can kind of edit and stick it out into the, into the world of uh, uh, the ether and get everybody interested. So uh, Norman, thank you very much for joining us today. Very excited. Um, I've known you for a few years. Uh, we met first at York Angels. Always been a fan of how you do things. And today I get to actually learn a lot more about you and your investment strategies and how you work in this space. So that's very exciting. So maybe to kick things off, uh, why don't you give us an idea, a bit more of your background of where Norman's come from and the great things that you're doing today. Okay, that's great. So my background, uh, very interesting. So actually until about uh, 10, 11 years ago, I spent my entire career working for uh, large companies in uh, senior management positions. I was with the Royal Bank uh, for a number of years. Uh, I was at Manulife. At Manulife, I was in the, the senior vice president of the top 20 in the world. So very, you know, senior positions, very large companies, which is sort of very different from, you know, from this space. Uh, but interesting, interesting enough, along the way, oh, through many years, I, I felt a little bit, a little bit sort of like fish out of water. I didn't, I didn't feel like that was the right place for me. I, I, you know, I did well and made good money and all that sort of stuff. But but I wasn't into the politics and all those things you sort of needed to really, you know, excel there. And uh, I always had in my mind, I'd like to help smaller companies. And um, I had even thought through many years ago, maybe I'll leave, go out on my own, do some consulting and all that. But the main problem I found in looking at that was that small companies need the help, but they can't really afford uh, to pay what, what, you know, what uh, they'd have to pay for, you know, for that sort of expertise. So it was always a bit of a conundrum. And I never really, you know, uh, pursued it. Uh, and then uh, in uh, 2008, uh, I left Manulife. Uh, time my hands didn't have to work. Uh, I, I joke about that sort of, you know, pre, pre that recession. But anyhow, um, but uh, started seeing some uh, interesting investment opportunities. Uh, myself or myself and a partner putting in whatever, 100 grand, 200 grand type of thing. Uh, liked working with the companies, but then also found most of them didn't close. Um, so, uh, while I was going through that, uh, a couple people said to me, oh, I know someone they're looking for a million dollars, whatever, some much larger amount, which was not something I was going to write my own, you know, uh, check for myself. And so I started thinking, okay, interesting. So I evolved from there into turning it into a business, got registered as an exempt market dealer issue myself. And a few years ago, my son joined me, like private capital. And basically we finance, you know, small companies. Um, and, uh, Basically, we, we sort of, I sort of come at it two different ways. There's what I do personally, which is more through the angel groups, which tends to be equity. It could be convertible notes or preferreds, but, uh, you know, to me, it's an equity risk. Um, and then the company, well, it started doing private equity initially. Uh, we found over time that that became actually very difficult, unfortunately. Uh, and the reason was the lack of liquidity. And we heard this through the angel groups about the lack of exits and how many years, et cetera. So, you know, and to give you an example of, of from a business point of view, when I started, I had some, you know, started with friends and people I knew in the call, et cetera. And I had some people say to me, okay, I'll invest in this one. But before I make a second investment, we'll see how it goes. Well, you know, we tell people five to seven years till an exit. So how do you build it? How do you build a, an investor base? 
that way. And in fact, I remember a conversation with a particular investor who said that, and that's exactly what he did, except the exit took nine years. And then he did a second investment. So, you know, very hard to build a business that way. So anyhow, we found, although I started before the recession, horrible timing, the investor appetite, you know, disappeared and then slowly came back every year. We found about five, six years ago that I faced a new obstacle, which was the investor appetite was greater, but there was a big lack of liquidity. And so more and more investors said to me, you know, I've got all this money invested in privates. As soon as something turns, I'll write another check for your next deal, but I haven't seen anything in four years. So again, hard to sort of build a business. So on the business side, as opposed to the personal side, we sort of pivoted away from private equity and we now do debt and we have hundreds of investors. It's grown tremendously. We do private debt, but we do private debt that could still help a lot of the companies that may be, may be watching this eventually because we're still targeting companies that are not yet profitable. They're close. They can't be pre-revenue for a debt model but they're not necessarily, you know, wonderfully profitable yet. They're close to getting to break even. We'll help them get over the top. And that's the model we call it. We call it venture debt. We're one of the few parties in Canada, it appears, that, that does that. And um, we've, uh, we've developed a lot of expertise in, in doing that. So typically where I am now is I do some equity through the more mainly through the angel side. Uh, and then I do the debt through the business side. The difference on the business side, because I'm bringing uh, an offering to hundreds of investors we may end up with a, a few dozen, whatever, and invest in any particular deal. But we're doing million dollars plus on the debt side. And on the, on the you know, on my personal side, it's much smaller, you know. Uh, uh, but in both cases, you know, I love helping entrepreneurs help, you know, like to see them, you know, become successful and uh, hope I can help them uh, a little bit, you know, on that journey. Amazing. No, I love that. And, uh, well, we have a lot of things in common. We certainly love to help uh, early stage companies. Uh, I love the fact that you've built another equity route uh, or sorry, um, a debt side. I'm also going to pick your brain now because I have uh, uh, a product that now I realize I should be talking to you about it. And then on the other side of it, um, going in and work with the angel groups to get in there again in that equity side to help build that up. So I think those are two great different streams and offer two different clientele um, opportunities to be able to disperse. And when you're looking at a portfolio, you want to split your money up in different ways, different risk levels. So I, I think that that's uh, commendable on any investor to look at what are the two ways that I can get into this early stage or into um, diversifying more my portfolio. So I, I really like that. So inside of that, you're looking at debt, you're finding different ways. What got you invested into early stage startups and getting part of angel groups? What kind of triggered that? What got you interested or what got you into seeing that there was this angel networks um, and joining one of them to, uh, to go that far? I, I guess initially I was looking at how am I going to, you know, if I'm interested in these types of investments, how am I going to find them? Right. I mean, one of the big advantages of an angel group is they have deal flow, right? So member York angels, member of spark angels, York, I think they, they receive four or 500 applications a year. And then they screen whatever X percent of that and they bring to the investors 30, 40 year, whatever the number is. Um, but as an individual trying to get into the space, how are you going to get access to you know, hundreds and hundreds a year to look at? Right. And so they, they have the deal flow. And then beyond that, you know, there's a lot of uh, expertise, you know, I may have come in with maybe a bit more experience than some, but, uh, or, you know, because of my financial background, but, but, but uh, even for people, in my background, there's a big advantage to looking at a company as a group because 
it may not be the financial part. It may be, you know, this particular product, this particular market segment. Uh, you know, there's lots of things that I'll see that I don't know much about, you know, manufacturing, for example, I've never worked in. Uh, and, and so you always have people in the room who have expertise that they can bring to bear uh, on that, either, either from just their background. Some is very specific, even that industry. Some even know these companies. But even if that's not the case, they bring a lot more expertise to bear to help you assess a company because at the end of the day, you know, that, that's the most important part of investing is to assessing the, the, the potential investment. And no one person can have the knowledge to be able to do a good job on, you know, on such a wide range of companies and in various industries, various products. Some are obviously, you know, B2C, some are B2B, some are, you know, both, uh, you know, uh, a lot of complexity. And so it's great to have other people that have knowledge that, that they'll, you know, they share as part of that process. So that's why for those who are not yet participating through angel groups, I would encourage them to look at, at that avenue because it's really a, 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 great, a great system to provide support. Obviously the deal flow is one element, but just in terms of actually assessing investments, you know, you'll, you'll end up collectively a better job than one party can do. No, that's a good point. You're right. It's uh, it really does that collective herd. And if you can start to pinpoint who's good at what, it allows you to make a better decision because you can figure out who is more industry focused, ask them some questions, which will allow you to better suit that startup uh, and saying, you know what, I'm interested. What have you thought of these things? I learned this, help them out, maybe connect them. So it's a really a, a, a wide open network that allows you to network in figure out more details. And then that allows you to invest in multiple areas instead of just finance, because that's your background or whatever things that you're really efficient at. It lets you open up that breadth of uh, investments and, and uh, get more opportunities. Absolutely. Absolutely. Is there uh, uh, any uh, favorite parts, like something you're like, man, I love this. I can't wait. This is the exciting part of startups. Is there something that really gets you going? Well, sometimes, uh, you know, uh, most startups have some sort of product or service that, you know, we haven't seen before that, that uh, as a benefit uh, to us as consumers or to society, uh, you know, but, but sometimes you see one that just sort of, uh, you know, hits that in spades, right? So, uh, you know, so, so some, some just maybe stand out that way. Um, and then the other part that I always, I always like and I laugh at is, you know, let's face it, uh, you know, I, I'm 63. I'm not, you know, the most up-to-date on all the social media and, you know, what's going on in technology that I used to be more up-to-date on stuff years ago. Um, and so, uh, you know, I always laugh when we see stuff at the, you know, opportunity intergroup that's really the market is our kids, you know, uh, and, uh, and the joke is, okay, who, who's going to evaluate this, uh, you know, who, who, who's going to, you know, call their children first, right? So, and uh, there's, uh, I'm going to mention, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on particular companies, but I'm going to mention one that you're familiar with, Enthusiast Gaming, which is now uh, public, and we've all done very well on it. But the joke of it was, okay, we got to all call, all call our kids, you know, so how smart really are we, you know? So, uh, anyhow, but, it, you know, it, uh, it it's just interesting because, uh, it, it just goes to show you that, that, you know, we can and should look at all different market segments and, and customer segments, even if, if we're not going to be the customer. And I, and I noticed from my business, when I started, I'm looking at something and you think, okay, do I like this product or service? And after a while, I start realizing, well, whether I do or don't, I'm a sample size of one. So really, <laughs> how useful is that, right? Um, 
and and so you, you sort of realize how, how you know limitations of your own analysis, right? I mean, your sample size of one, and if you if you love it, okay, that's one, <laughs> and if you hate it, that's one. You know, so uh, you know you need a broader perspective. Agreed. And I think it's great too that um, you brought your son in to help too, because I think that really helps you hit those different age categories, as you mentioned. And he's going to see things a little bit differently than you will if it's on the social marketing uh, data side versus what you're looking at. And I think that that probably carries a lot of value. And we see that just in uh, having seven groups in our syndication and the people that are screening the younger read, uh, sorry, the younger people that are um, doing the uh, the deep dive. They have a total different perspective than someone that's been doing it for 20 years. Uh, and, and it makes a big difference because they're going to have more interest in something that's more functional that fits into their realm of uh, everyday tasks versus with somebody else who doesn't use any of that stuff. So I think it's pretty valuable to be able to carry those different age categories or groupings in your business. No, I agree. I agree. So in this investment world, have you found, you, you mentioned a few things that you like, that you still diversify. Is there any verticals that you really like to focus more on and that you have more interest to invest in? So interesting enough, um, I would say on the, you know, people say you must do a lot of tech, right? Um, and on the business side, we've done well, know, some tech companies. You, I think we're both investors in one, uh, one or two, uh, but we haven't focused exclusively on tech. And, and what we find is particularly for debt, um, you know, sometimes the less, uh, you know, fancy or, or, or hot areas, uh, there's lots of opportunities that sort of get ignored. And, uh, and those companies need help too, right? So we just find through deal flow that we end up with a mixture. And, and sometimes the hot areas are actually uh, less attractive because the valuations get bid up, uh, you know, various other, other factors come into play that often we, can, we feel we can, we can get a, make a better investment outside of the hot areas, which is sort of counterintuitive to some people, right? Uh, but, uh, you know, we're, we're not, we're not trying to target particular sectors or just a, there's a few that we've never, I've never done oil and gas or mining, even when they were popular, I just feel like they have the expertise to bring that to my investors, you know, and be credible. Um, so we're not really excluding much. Uh, we, we, we didn't do uh, cannabis because we felt our investor pool was, you know, was sort of uh, pretty conservative and, you know, seemed to be a bit polarizing to start, you know, doing that. Uh, crypto really isn't a business, but other than those, we, we haven't, you know, really excluded anything. We'll take a look. Uh, sometimes it's a black box. You say, well, it's not for me, you know, uh, yeah, I still have to understand it. I have to basically understand the business or I'm not going to get comfortable. Um, you know, I have to, uh, be comfortable that and agree with their business strategy. So occasionally we've seen business we love, but we did, you know, we felt that the way they were approaching the market, uh, what, what, what segments they were focused on, whatever, we just didn't think that they're, you know, the most, the best way to do it. So we might, we might pass. Um, but yeah, we're we're pretty open to uh, you know pretty much any industry. Um, you know, the the one we haven't dealt we haven't approached at all is real estate as an investment as opposed to tech and all that right, real estate. And just because in my particular case, a lot of my investors are in that field, and I just felt like I would have too many conflicts. And let's you know we we, we don't we don't need that. So too much um, overlap. Yeah, yeah. So um, we haven't done anything in, in in real estate at this point. So well, you mentioned that. Uh there's a comfort level, which I agree with. You really do got to dive in and really understand the company, understand where they're trying to go. And then of course, the key to this is the strategy and how they're approaching the market. And I guess overall, do you have a strategy on the types of companies or the amount of companies that you're going to invest in? 
uh, every year is it like every year I'm going after five and I got to try hospitality and next year I'm going after medical <laughs> or is do you have no, a No, it's what it's whatever whatever comes at a time that we we feel is that you know for the, for the business where it's the debt side you know there's a bit of a narrow range in terms of the stage they're at you know this idea that they're going to be close to break even is a narrower focus than on the equity side where it could be pre-revenue, it could be further along, there's a sort of a wider range, right? Um, so, so we're driven more by the stage company than by, by the, uh, you know, the sector. Um, but, you know, interesting enough, what we find with entrepreneurs is some of them don't, they don't, uh, they, they know but help understand how investors think, which is of course part of your process and, and, uh, and very helpful. And I, we often hear, we have a great product. And, uh, and often they do. We say, that's great, but you have to understand, if you have a great product, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Like, that's really step one, because an average product is not going to succeed, mm-hmm. right? So you need a great product to then start filling in the other parts of the equation. Do you have the right management team? Do you have the right strategy? Do you have you know, all these things? Because a great, great products fail and poor products succeed. And, you know, why, why does that happen? Well, it's all these other elements, Right? It's a strategy, it's the management team, in some cases financing, but that's often, often not really, the financing is often not really uh, the biggest factor uh, in, in why companies aren't successful. Um, it's usually because they haven't, the finance they, they've, you know, they've accessed, they haven't used them as efficiently as possible to, you know, to, uh, to make the, uh, the, the company progress far enough. Right? Um, so there's a lot of elements to, uh, you know, to success here. And, and, uh, and particularly when I tell people that, you know, uh, people with poor products can succeed. doesn't mean I want to invest in them, but they can succeed. Um, it, they look at me funny and it just shows you the importance of all these other elements. That's true. And so I guess that leaves it kind of like an open box that there's probably a good number of companies that you'll invest on both sides from the equity side to the debt side each year. Do you also reinvest in these companies as well? Like, do you have a percentage that you hold back in your portfolio to make so typically? And by the way, uh, we typically on the venture debt side, you know, we've done probably four a year. We can increase it. It's really a question of seeing the right deals. So it's not we're not yeah. really limited. On the private side, I'm doing sort of one or two deals a year. Um, part of it is because uh, on the business side, I, my mall is, is, is the investor will not see a deal that I don't invest in myself. And I'm typically a large percentage. The amounts are, you know, add up significantly. So given the slower turn on the, on the, you call it the angel investment side, the events, the amounts and frequency tend to be smaller because that money is going to be sitting longer. You know, the debt does, the debt does turn, right. It's supposed to turn. We do three year loans. Right. So, um, so it's uh, a little bit easier. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah. So we 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 typically do you know maybe uh, like I said maybe four a year, but there's no um, no major uh, you know limit on that. And you put a percentage in, like do you do reinvestments as well because it's so important to support so we don't we don't sort of go in with the intention to reinvest. So so it's happened. But uh, on the debt side, the idea is we do a loan. It's three year loan. We get repaid. We have some warrants. Um, if everything's according to plan, we should need to reinvest because we come in a stage where it should get them over the top where they're profitable and they can either uh, then borrow more cheaply, uh, yeah. which is great, uh, or, or they might do further raises if they need for growth, uh, but they, they, they're not, they shouldn't be desperate for more funding. So you know, our attention going in is we don't expect to reinvest. Um, 
On the equity side, uh, the Angels has happened on a few. Enthusiast Gaming was one. Uh, it's another one I did recently where I've, I've gone in a couple of times. Uh, but uh, that, was, that was more, you know, somewhere between expected or it might, it might happen, right? It, wasn't, it wasn't, wasn't like a down round that there's a problem. It was simply that, you know, they probably will, will they're raising in stages. Uh, they probably will, uh, will need some additional funding a little later. Uh, it wasn't a surprise, you know. Fair enough. Um, well, it sounds like you've got a good portfolio, though. You've got a, a good style to where you go at it. You've got two sides. You're balancing them out on where you're making the investments, converting, moving things, sitting it in a little bit longer, and other ones are revolving uh, pretty quickly. When you're going through this, is there a duration it takes for you to make a decision? And what is those over-the-top things that will help you make those decisions on the four companies on the debt side or the, the two companies on the equity angel right. side? What are those extra DD things that you're looking for? You mentioned a couple of things around strategy and maybe the team management team. Uh, what maybe can you can refine a little bit more of that? But if someone was looking to come to you, what kind of things do you think are really important? So on the debt side, obviously we're we're focused on can, you know can we get repaid? Do you, we're taking risks? These companies are not yet profitable, um, so obviously their projections are quite important. And 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 you know how how credible you know we think they're achievable. We all see hockey stick projections, um, and so. You know, we have, uh, fortunately, a little, a little bit easier. We have some history there. You know, pre-revenue company, there's no history. Here we have some revenue. You can see how it's progressing. You know, which customers, uh, you know, if it's, if it's B2C, you can actually get the names of the customers. Sorry, B2B. Uh, uh, we actually call some customers if it's, if it's B2B. Uh, we, we do some uh, calls customers to understand, you know, why they're buying this product or service, what do they like about it, you know, are there some things can be improved, all that sort of thing. We sometimes actually get some good competitive culture for the company itself <laughs> as part of those calls. Uh, and so that's an important part. But at the end of the day, it's, it's mainly what I'll call cash flow lending, where, you know, there may be a little bit of assets there, but we're not really going to get repaid if the company fails. Uh, you know, that's not really uh, our source of repayment. It's really cash flow. So we got to be comfortable projections uh, often ask company to either reduce them or do a lower volume, you know, a sensitivity of lower sales, et cetera. Um, we want to understand if they run into problems, you know, the cost, you know, cost they can cut. We want to understand, you know, what could happen and what our risks are, uh, you know, along the way. So, uh, you know, so there's, there's a lot there, but, but besides the obvious of, of uh, understanding the product and the market uh, and the management uh, skills, et cetera. Uh, you know, the, the, the whole customer side is very important, right? Um, and, and, and are they focused on the right things? We've seen, you know, entrepreneurial teams that sometimes, you know, are, are spending too much time in areas that are less important or not enough time in the areas are most important or, you know, those sorts of things. So it's, at the end of the day, so much of this is comfort and confidence, right? because you're handing someone your money and it's, it's are they going to take it and use it, you know, in the most efficient, effective way. Right. And uh, so that's very important. So for example, uh, and I mentioned this, I'll mention this to any entrepreneurs that, that uh, might see this, you know, it's extremely important that you can explain your projections. You can, you can answer questions. Uh, you know, don't, don't stretch any information with the company. Just tell us like it is. If something, you know, if, you know, if something is, there's a sales proposal out. It's not a sale. Tell us that's what it is. Don't tell us it's a sale, you know, 
or it's guaranteed or this and that. Because as soon as we find something that that you know has been stretched, it affects our confidence, right? And so you're better off telling it like it is, words and all, and people understand the big words, right? The company's at a certain stage, they understand that, they expect that, right? Versus trying to sort of make everything sound too rosy and that'll usually come back to bite you because people see through that and then they won't invest and then, you know, you're, you're worse off. So it's very important that uh, uh, people don't stretch. They tell us, you know, things like they are. Tell you like it is. I like the, I like the idea around uh, the product side. I think a lot of times investors look at, and, and you talked about it before, so it is a part of your, your analysis that you're looking for a strong team, strong strategy, but that the product has a fit and that you're calling customers up and you're making sure that that customer is giving you the raw, dirty facts about this product, why they bought it or why they bought this service. I think that is something that most people don't normally talk to, but I 100% agree with. We've done lots of calls to customers. Why did you buy this thing? Um, I learned a long time ago when I was uh, investing back in 2000 in stocks, uh, when the dot-com crashed and all that stuff, someone always told me, invest in the products that you use and learn enough about them to figure out how they operate and work. And so my investments were Nortel, Apple, all in the beginning because I saw that those products were things that I got behind and things that I liked and I could support and that I could buy their product and use it. So it wasn't this far-fetched dream of this product is so cool, but no one will ever buy it because it doesn't fit anywhere. So I kind of like that philosophy, but at the same time, you're a customer, but you can also understand what the customer is coming from and how it's solving their problem. So I really like the fact that you put some time into understanding why that service or product's being used. We even we even will call a suppliers a if if it's like a, a key component from a you know sole source supplier type of thing. I mean, we may speak to the suppliers as well just to get you know just get comfortable there, right? Yeah, that's good. Yeah, everywhere you can, uh, I guess, uh, if you're being rooted everywhere, figuring out where you can nip off that. Uh, extension cord that's hanging out and just clean things up to get to the right spot, right? It's, it's always about making sure everything's efficient and running the right way. And sometimes yeah. suppliers have different insights, how they're paying bills, what they're not doing, what they are doing right, uh, where they see the product going, because sometimes they're helping invest in the product or help build it. So those are all valuable insights. I love that. That's great. Um, so is there, is there any factors that fit outside of DD uh, outside of um, the people, the customer service, is there anything on a paperwork side that you really try to emphasize? Like you want to make sure that if you're coming in on the angel side that, you know, they've got the um, shareholders agreements, they've got all this locked in. Is there anything that you specifically want to make sure that they do have because you've been burned or you don't want this to happen to the company? Well, I mean, certainly we've come across uh issues which is not where we start uh we sort of say just tell us how this you know what the situation is now we'll look at the agreements later uh because you don't want to spend the more amount of time you know keep in mind we don't invest you know we invest in, in, in on, the, on the debt side less than one in ten that we see so you're only you know you're in, in our business you're, you're trying you're not trying but you sort of have to get to a no quickly you can't spend a month on a no it's going to kill you right so mm -hmm. so you're dealing with give us the information first and, you know, as we go further, we may come back and verify some of it through agreements, but we don't need to reread the 100 page agreements first. Right. So that's how we operate. But but yeah, occasionally we've had, mm, you know, the agreements don't quite don't quite support what you're telling us. Again, it comes back to this confidence issue. Um, 
One area that I've seen, it's not one area that's a big, big uh, factor here, but one area I've probably seen a bit more than others is when somebody uh, has maybe licensed something or there's some sort of shared ownership of some IP, sometimes what we're being told up front and what's the case with legal agreements isn't quite the same. And that's, again, tell us like it is, if there's some problems up front, let us be aware of it. We might decide to focus there first. Um, but don't have us go through all due diligence to find out, you know, we're, we're at, you know, we're 90% of the way there that there's something that's a problem. And uh, people walk away very quickly because again, it, it, it's all that confidence, you know, uh, that, that uh, it's hurt. Uh, it's hurt by that. Right. So um, it's, uh, it, it's a problem we've seen a number of times, unfortunately. Yeah, I agree. I remember uh, one in particular where I remember we were doing the deep dive and, it was a unique and different product. And then we found out that 50% uh, of the product was owned by another company and that uh, they also took royalties and any new products that they got, they got to take 50% of that new product. And we were like, so what do you actually own here? Like this is crazy. What are we investing in? So it, it does become uh, a little bit too much when you spend time at the beginning, trying to understand it and they don't share it till the end. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Which is unfortunate. Yeah. One area I do find uh, that uh, companies tend to uh, underestimate is competition. Uh, they tend to downplay what the competition is doing, poo-poo the competition, et cetera. Uh, and I would say it's a very important area for investors that they want to you know, help us understand who the competitors are, uh, help us understand the strength and weaknesses, but, you know, be uh, realistic in your assessment because, uh, you know, we've seen uh, uh, another area that I've seen a number of times that's a bit of, can be a bit of weakness. They said, well, we've got this great product. It's better than this competitor. And, uh, uh, you know, I look at the competitor's got a million customers and they're starting with zero, right? And sort of say, okay, well, how easy for that competitor to do something like what you've got, right? In some cases, it's pretty easy. I said, well, they'll just wait. If they see you having success, they'll copy your product, offer their million customers, and then where are you, Right. So maybe a great concept, but sometimes great concepts are not going to be successful for those types of reasons. You've got someone with an entrenched market position that could basically uh, scoop it or, or block you or whatever it is. I mean, it'd be like trying to compete with Google today, right? So, so uh, people it spurs, again, other in, it, it spurs on other innovation. So yeah. your product could be amazing and not have the, the, the amount of clientele that it's looking for. And that's going to spark other companies to create new innovative things. So now you've created um, your own competition, which is great. Competition is good. It helps from a marketing standpoint, helps you get the product out. But if you don't have a strong base, you can lose that really quickly and they can gain ground much faster than you could yeah. if they have a larger base. So it's really understanding the competitors, understanding their position, understanding how they could react, what they're, what they're able to do. And, and I've seen this a number of times when the, the entrepreneur was relying on Competitor being dumb. And I said, say, well, you know, people usually wake up. They may not be right away, but they usually wake yeah. up. So, you know, it's not where I want to put my money that, you know, you're going to be successful when the competitor, you know, is asleep. It's not, it's not a great uh, horse to bet on, right? Could, could, it, could it work? It could, but there's all kinds of risks associated with that. Is there, when you're kind of going through and assessing this risk, on the paperwork side, is there preferred terms that you have? Like you don't want uh, safes or you're good with safes, you're okay with convertible notes or you want equity, um, common shares, so what do you look at? On the, on the 
what I call the equity side, because we're now into the form, right? Because whether it's convertible note or not, it's really the same. It's an sure. equity risk. It's 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 it requires an X to get money out, uh, etc. As opposed to my debt deals, right? Um, you know, I'm okay preferreds or or convertible notes. I really don't like safes. Um, sometimes the discounts are pretty are pretty weak. I you know I. Uh, fr frankly, I don't. I usually don't have this choice because by the time it gets to me, they've already got a structure. Other people have come in under, but often I prefer equity over convertibles because the problem is with these convertibles is the price is being set later, but I'm taking the risk now, and I don't often think that a 10% discount or whatever it is is enough to compensate for that differential risk over the next couple of years till it might convert. So I actually think a convertible an investor may often be giving up upside for a little bit of downside protection. So uh, it's actually not my preferred uh, route uh, to have a price set later. I understand why it's done, but it can be to the investor's disadvantage, right? Um, on the business side, again, we have a pretty standard sort of debt structure um, that we use and we're, you know, we try not to tweak it very much because the investors, our investors know it very well. So when they see a deal, it saves them a lot of time to know it's a venture loan there's no changes in structure. I know the structure. It, it saves a lot of time back and forth. So we've, we've tweaked it a little bit occasionally, like a couple of deals, but really not very much. So we've, we've, we've sort of got it fairly standardized for that reason. Well, consistency is good, right? People then become more adaptable. They move quicker. So that, and that's what you're looking for. You want to convert within three to four weeks versus three to four months. So, right. And, and actually, I'll come back to your earlier question. How long, how long is our process? Right. And um, basically um, on the debt side, typically, um, you know, we meet you uh, and um, and um, we will complete our due diligence in about a month and then we'll go to our investors to close another month. So it's reasonably quick yep. uh, uh, compared to equity deals, as you know, can take quite some time. Agreed. Oh, that's good. And if you guys, uh, do you look at leading any rounds in this process or do you uh, focus strictly on uh, working with the other groups in closing off uh, either debt or uh, equity side? Okay, Jeff, can I just do a quick response to something here? I'm sorry to give a little video. <laughs> yeah, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Um, we're closing like several deals at the same time, which is why it's been so crazy. And this one literally has to close today. And I just got a question from someone. So I'm just going to refer them off to my son. Okay. And um, Dynamic business. I like well, it. It is what it is. Yeah, it's good. But, uh, in fact, I spoke to this person before the call to, to hopefully avoid this, but I should have said, if you have any, you know, make sure you send it to him. But anyhow, um, it is what it is, so. Okay, done. Sorry about that. No, that's good. That's good. Yeah, so we're pretty quick um, compared to equity on the debt side. That's reasonably quick. We don't have a fund with the syndicate, so that's one of the reasons it does take us a little bit of time versus a fund where I, you know, we approve it, we write the check within days. Uh, but we have a pretty efficient process. We've done it so many times now. And right. do you do you look at leading any rounds, or do you? So of course, on the debt side, it's our it's our round. Right, it's typically around our investors. We've occasionally been with somebody else, uh, institution that's, but they may be providing equity or they may be providing a shred loan or something else in conjunction with our venture debt. 
but typically our you know our piece is ours, right? Uh, it's a, we we you know we're we're originating it, we're structuring it, uh, we bring it to our investors. Uh, so we're typically always the lead. Um, on the equity side for the intergroups, uh, I haven't typically taken on that role, but it's mostly just because of time. Yeah. Um, you know, and maybe one day I'd you know be able to to do more there, but just haven't really had the time. Right, that works. That works. You're doing lots already. Um, so if you were to look at, uh, I guess, all the companies you've invested in, the companies you've worked with over the years, is there an underlying one, two, or three things that really stand out in your mind that companies, when they're starting off, they should really look at doing um, before they take debt, before they take equity, uh, or release those? Uh, is there something you can say, and it can be around any of the things you've kind of shared already, but is there something that you really think really drives success in the business that gets you interested? If someone comes to you and they show you X, Y, and Z, you're like, I love this, I'm in. Um, is there something that really stands out for that? I think, I think a key factor, this from the intergroups a lot, is how coachable is a management team, right? Many of these are young, they haven't done this before. Uh, as opposed to some people that it's their third exit, you know, their, their third time around. Uh, and, you know, the ones that have been successful, uh, you know, will, will listen and learn. Uh, and in many cases, some of the successful uh, businesses over time uh, actually had to pivot. Uh, and so you don't listen and learn, you know, you'll be stuck, you know, trying the same thing over and over when it's not succeeding, right? So, and there's a lot of expertise available. Think of the intergroups, for example. So, you know, when you see someone, uh, we see someone who's a bit headstrong, they know everything. For an investor, it's a bit of a red flag, right? Because they may know a lot, uh, but things change. And, uh, and yes, I may not know your industry, but we've got people with decades of business experience who've seen everything, right? So, so I think the key is, uh, you know, are they coachable? Particularly when it's their first time around in a new business, they're, you know, reasonably young. Uh, it's a very big factor. I think people investors look at is, you know, are they going to, are they going to listen and learn because everybody's going to have some learning to do, uh, you know, to get to that, that stage of being successful. Right. Um, and, uh, and, and that's extremely important. Is there, you know, kind of, you've gone through this process, you've made, you've gone deep dive, you've learned a lot about the company, you, you find that you're aligning with a lot of their, um, next steps and even make the investment now are there things inside of this um company because you found that you know they're communicating they're coachable so you're really excited about them what can they do or what can you do to keep helping them outside of finances or some other things that you look at supporting them with or can you support them that way or you kind of made the investment and, and now you're looking at other companies how do you continue to keep that company engaged and helping you know what's going on inside of them. Right. So for, I mean, for the loans, we have a loan monitoring process because we have to update our investors. We, and, and this is a, a key element that we find that a lot of companies, particularly the intergroups we hear, uh, fall down on, and that's just keeping our investors up to date. And, and so, you know, we look for, whether it's on the business side or the other side, we look for sort of a quarterly update. It doesn't have to be, you know, 10 pages. Uh, tell us how you're doing, you know, financially, uh, you know, successes, failures, et cetera. Again, tell it like it is. Yep. Uh, and uh, the, the, the uh, negative I hear from investors the most, the concern I hear the most, is I don't hear, I don't hear how my investment's doing. Uh, and then, of course, human nature, they usually assume the worst, right? 
So as much as it's a bit of a pain, you've got a business to run, you're working 110% of your time, you know, take a few hours once a quarter, put out a note, everyone will appreciate that they'll understand, you know, where you are. And sometimes they'll, they'll say, you know, you know, can I help, et cetera. Uh, so I think that's a very, very, very important element that uh, a lot of companies, unfortunately, you know, fall down on. For us, you know, once we make the investment, um, you know, we look at, even before making us look at, do we have potential customers to confer them to? So if it's a consumer-oriented product, we bring in a financing, we bring in 30 investors, they're trying to add 200 customers, you know, a week, it's not going to matter, right? It's not going to move their numbers. So we may, they may get a few more customers, but it's not, it's not going to really move their, move their needle, right? On the business side, however, we've had cases with, you know, with B2Bs, we have customers of size that we've introduced them to and they've become customers and, uh, and, and maybe bring in others and it can be much more substantial. So uh, we've certainly uh, seen the cases of that. Um, and, uh, and so we try and help that. Of course, it helps, helps us, helps the company where everybody's happy, right? So we certainly have had uh, cases of that, uh, that happening. No, that's great. And, and I think all help works when it's early stage companies. They all need a little bit of support somewhere and that could be on sales, it could be on uh, legal or connections, networking, whatever, mentoring, um, which actually brings me to my next, and my, one of my, closer to my last few questions, but um, because you've talked about coaching and you've talked about all these things that you can do to help support them, do you think the early stage companies or uh, the founders should look at things like getting mentoring or getting supported coaching or building an advisory or a board really early on? Uh, do you think that that's valuable for those companies versus maybe waiting until they're two, three years in, they're maybe doing a million in ARR and maybe that's when they start to look at really branching out and getting to that next layer. Uh, is that a better time to do it? Do you have kind of a, an idea around that? I think earlier is better because, you know, the ones that don't do it may not get to the million dollars ARR, right? So you, you want to get, you know, uh, the, the help earlier, uh, again, it also depends on how experienced or inexperienced they are. Right? We do see some that are more experienced than others, right? Entrepreneurs. Uh, but I think it helped. Now, having said that, you know, it's got to be if it's if it's one mentor, it's got to be sort of a fit. They're not, you know, not always the perfect fit. Uh, you know, an advisory board is a good concept. Uh, some entrepreneurs do it, and they put the names out there to impress investors, but don't really use them effectively. And others really do you know, take the advice and, and, and call them and all of that. So I think used effectively uh, early can be very helpful uh, because uh, getting to a million dollars ARR is not necessarily an easy task. Uh, in many cases, that's harder than going from a million to five, right? So, uh, you know, I think earlier is, is, is better in, uh, in many situations. Not recognizing, you know, it's time consuming and all that, but uh, a lot of these entrepreneurs could, could use more advice. We, we uh, beyond the monitoring, we also are always available for advice uh, you know, uh, as uh, you know, companies go forward, some take us up on it, some don't. Uh, we typically find that where they need the most help, if the business is doing, you know, reasonably well, uh, having a next stage, et cetera, is it can be negotiating, you know, customer agreements, it could be small acquisitions, or it could be those sorts of things where they have no experience. And um, too many just sort of approach it as another business challenge, not realizing how different that is. And, uh, and so we've seen some problems where people have not, have not gone for advice when they should have, right? And unfortunately, we sometimes get called when it's a bit too late or there's a mess on their hands or whatever. So, uh, you know, these are very, very important, uh, can be very important agreements. And you have to have your expertise at the table to do, it, to do them properly. 
No, that's a good point. And, and getting as much advice anywhere you can before you sign something is huge. Huge. I think I've seen that a few times and uh, I shake my head and scratch it and think, man, if that quick 30 second phone call, I would have yelled stop on the phone and uh, put the brakes on and let's reanalyze what you're trying to achieve here because what you're achieving right now, you're going to lose big time on if we don't take a bigger uh, approach to this. So One of our uh, companies we, we, we financed through a loan, we basically saved the company, a long established company, not, not, an, not a you know, startup, I've been doing well for years, signed a strategic agreement for, for, in this case, the U.S., structured very poorly, and, uh, and it also almost uh, cost them their company. So, uh, you know, and, and it wasn't necessary. They could have structured a proper agreement and, you know, been fine. Yeah, sometimes I think people, too, look at taking shortcuts. And when you take a shortcut, uh, if the shortcut's not your shortcut intention and someone else's, you tend to find the hard way there. You learn the, the hard lessons. So uh, being thorough and, and making sure that you're doing things properly is going to benefit you. And uh, really at the end of the day, you got to keep self-protection in this because your business means everything. It's your business. So, yep. And there are people who have done this, you know, dozens of times. So why not learn from them? Agreed. Yeah. hundred percent. So if, uh, if I could kind of, steer this way we've gone through this whole journey about investing and getting behind these companies and supporting them and communicating and everybody's kind of working together uh you pick the things that kind of really made the success of a startup uh maybe one heartfelt story that you can share of your time from investing where you kind of thought this was a real shot in the dark you didn't know if they were going to pull through and boom they came and they ended up here uh do you have one of those uh real wartime style uh startup uh opportunities or investments that you made that you were just blown away by and, and it's a great story that you just love to share because you're super excited for where they came from and where they ended up um god hard to think of one um well you, you can know, share them all if you want but i'm just no thinking, no 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 one so uh well you know sometimes uh a company could just be uh uh they've got a great product or service, but you know, just too early, right? The market's just not ready for them. Right. And so I can think of two examples. One company, unfortunately is not that well because it's surprising to us, but the market's still not there. So I won't, I won't, I won't focus on that one. Uh, but another one is about to take off and leaps and bounds because they were too early, but the, the market is now just about ready for them. And so uh, it's a company that's developed, very uh, sophisticated uh, software, uh, which, which in layman's terms would be called for pattern making. So what's pattern making? Well, think of, it could be clothing, it could be uh, industrial products, uh, but things with fabrics. Um, and to go from a 3D model today to what exact pieces I have to cut at what sizes in 2D is actually extremely complex. And, and that's what pattern maker used to do, but you know, those people have all retired pretty much, right? So, <laughs> and, and so they developed very sophisticated software that could take that 3D model and figure out exactly the size of what has to be cut it, and it factors in that it's for what type of fabric it might stretch, it might sag, it might this or that. Uh, and they've been doing this for other kinds of industrial production over years. So, you know, the business has been sort of an okay size, but not, you know, not particularly successful, not, you know, they're, 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 they're going along, but they're doing okay. Um, and now what's happened is the whole market of being able to order clothing online 
that fits you and have it made, you know, for you is about to take off. And so they've basically called repackage what they have. They have to add a few things for this, but, but they were 95% there have years of experience doing this and have now proven they can do this with incredible accuracy that you will love the fit. So it's just an interesting example where we thought the market for where they were already in was bigger or, I mean, it is bigger, but we have a lot of companies that are sort of set in their ways. Uh, but while they were sort of, you know, trying to make that work better, uh, this other market came along and they, you know, should be lift off uh, very, very soon. So Very cool. So the world caught up to them. So they were really advanced on figuring out the world's going to shift into more custom so they can cut costs and be more effective. And long and behold, they were right. And the market just took forever to catch up. And glad they didn't sink. They were able to maintain themselves yep. and still build clientele. And now the world's shifted enough and they're saying, hey, you know what? This actually might be the perfect time for a, a boom here. So that's pretty cool. So very interesting one. Yeah. Well, we're uh, we're down to our last question, and um, it's all been amazing. Learn lots, which is very cool. Which I like to do is learn. So if I the last question, you're gonna have to take out the magic crystal ball and say, you know, where do we see, let's say, the next uh, twelve months to thirty six months? Where do you see the investment community and startups going? Is there a specific vertical that you really like that you think is going to take off the next 12 months or 36 months? Or do you think it's more going to be agnostic and there's going to be some shifts that are going to go on, money's going to change? Can you kind of give me some, just some high level ballpark ideas of where you see the world in the next 12 to 36 months? It's, it's, hard to, it's hard to focus on verticals because the world's changing so quickly, but, you know, you think of the sort of the AI, big data, you know, uh, elements out there that we're seeing more and more of, and you would think there'll be, you know, pretty rapid growth, you know, there. But in general, I think we're seeing, you know, short-term with COVID, excuse me, we're seeing, um, you know, investors sort of pulling in their horns a little bit on the equity side, you know, on the private side because of the lack of liquidity, right? So we've seen in our business, some investors have decided to, you know, go on pause for now. Uh, you know, some of their portfolios have been hit. Uh, they maybe just wanted to send on more cash just, just because of uncertainty. Uh, some, of course, their businesses have taken a, you know, a step back, et cetera. So that's, that's all temporary, but that's sort of where we are today. The underlying longer-term trend, though, is actually quite in favor of, of private investing and private equity because what's happening is people are seeing there's potential higher returns. There's, there's, there's still education to be done, but more and more student investors are seeing if I give up liquidity, I can get much higher returns. So it's not for my whole portfolio. I need liquidity for some of my portfolio, but I could take a piece of my portfolio. I don't need the money back so fast and I could potentially get much higher returns. And so there's a long-term trend that we're seeing on the private side. And just an example of that is another, another part of business I haven't talked about because it's a little bit different, but through some sources we work with, we offer our investors shares in pre-IPO unicorns, very large private companies, unicorns are billion dollar plus valuation. And we've had good success there. We're just, as we speak, closing an offering of SpaceX, which has gotten lots of attention. Uh, over a number of years, we've done, you know, Spotify and Lyft and some others. But what's interesting about it is inline trends there. So there, you know, if you go back 20, 25 years, statistics are there were one or two companies that would qualify. Okay. Uh, now there's 300 or whatever the number is, there's hundreds. And why is that? Well, the private markets have gotten deeper and deeper. More money is going into private equity. So these companies like Uber, 
was able to raise $10 billion before it went public. Years ago, it was impossible. They went public within five years of any of the kind of capital because the private markets weren't deep enough. So you're seeing deeper deep prime markets, you're seeing more money going into that. As much as I'm focused on the unicorn here, which is sort of a particular element of that market, some of that is trickling down to the smaller private companies that more money, you know, people, investors are understanding there's more opportunity there. I just have to be willing to give up some liquidity. It's not for everybody, but for many people, they're willing to take a piece of portfolio and do that. And the reality is success begets success, right? So the more we see of the enthusiast gaming, for example, is one of the more recent successes that the angel groups have had, uh, the more they'll attract funds. So I do think the longer term trend, as much as we may have a, a short term sort of step back here on, on, on investors investing in private equity, uh, the longer term trend I think is still in its favor. Um, and there's certainly good opportunities. And, uh, you know, if people can give up some liquidity, it's a great space and a great way to participate would be through someone uh, could be our type of thing with debt deals where you don't have the expertise, but we bring that to bear. Or on the pure equity side, the angel groups are a terrific uh, a venue, uh, uh, avenue, sorry, to, to get there because the collective knowledge and expertise uh, and experience that they have uh, really reduces your risk, you know, in, in doing this. So I, I do think, uh, you know, the trends are in our favor longer term, but maybe in the very short term, uh, not so much. But another way to look at it is where were these angel groups 10 years ago versus today, right? They've grown by leaps and bounds because of these factors. No, that's awesome. And uh, I, I think, again, you're, you're fitting into some nice little buckets that are helping your investors um, change up their portfolios so that they're not just heavily focused in one area, but able to diversify. And in the future, uh, there's going to be a lot more of these opportunities and you just have to decide which one's going to work best for you at the time that you're investing. And uh, liquidity is becoming an issue, 100%. Uh, you put a lot into these companies, even if the companies are growing to be massive, if they don't uh, go to a liquidation from a sale or go to uh, the markets, then you could be holding on this for 5, 10, 15 years. Um, and great, the company's doing awesome, but you never get to liquidate. So you kind of start to wonder, uh, how am I going to keep doing this if I'm not building up all these different avenues? So um, all valuable information. So that was, uh, that was great. Well, I think, uh, uh, Norman, I'm going to have to say that that was fantastic. I really enjoyed learning more about you and the investments. I'm sure we could talk for many more hours on diving into all of these different pieces. Uh, but like I always say, I've taken lots of notes. So there's lots of uh, good material here that uh, we're going to splice and put together and send out um, over the uh, upcoming months. But I wanted to thank you very much for your time. And uh, I'll turn it over to you for one last, uh, I guess, moment if you want to share anything that you want to say to startups that you think will help them think a little bit outside the box or whatever that might be. Uh, but I give you the last word. I would just say to the startups that, you know, the key that we've seen to those that have been successful, you know, aside from all the obvious elements, you know, that we've sort of talked through here is really, is really is persistence. You know, uh, these are never, you know, things never go in a straight line. It's always going to take longer than you think and maybe more money than you think to be successful. But if you've got, you know, that right product or service, uh, you know, stick with it and, uh, and you'll get there. And then, and all, all the successful entrepreneurs will tell you it was never an overnight success story, right? So, so just have to uh, be realistic and, uh, 
and persistence is very, very important. Perfect. Well, on that note, thank you very much, Norman. I wish you a fantastic day and uh, we'll keep you posted on uh, when everything is ready to move out the door for you and we'll share, share it along. Great. Well, thank you. Awesome. Perfect. Thank you, Norman. Okay. Bye. Enjoy your day. Well, there you have it. Fantastic interview from Norman Light at, at Light Capital. And I think just to kind of iterate a few things is that when it comes down to investment, uh, the real thing you got to look at, and you mentioned in the last word, which was being persistent, driven to make success, pushing hard, making sure you're coachable. But I, I think the key to all of this is always about being coachable, but he made a great point, which is find out about that product. Make sure that product zings and that people want it. So you really got to do your homework. Make sure that when that product or MVP is launched, that your customers are really back behind it, which means you really have to have customers right away from the beginning. So I think overall, uh, I'm pretty highly in, uh, excited and impressed with all the information that he shared. And I think that uh, it's going to be a great video to share. Uh, but I, I think he left us with some great things to think about. Get some help. Talk to the experts. They're going to give you a little bit more insight and broader view into the world. Let them build some comfort, build a fantastic strategy, work with your customers, giving your customers the right mix of what they need in order to accept and love your product so that the investors can come on board and see what great things you're doing and be persistent. Keep kicking butt. And uh, yeah, don't take no for an answer. Make it work. All right, everybody. Enjoy your day. And thank you very much for checking us out. And uh, we'll see you guys another time this week.